0: Bible, turn to the book of James tonight. Uh, I will tell you that tonight's message is more teachy than preachy, uh, in the fact that we got a lot of good information. Uh, we're going to wait until probably next week to make the uh, spiritual applications. We're going to lay a lot of foundation here tonight and give you a lot of really good information that you need to know as a Bible believing Christian. Some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, even though it's just factual based, and, and where we get our information from, is going to help you uh, to be able to understand your faith better. It's going to help you to be able to share your faith better uh, and answer questions that come up from time to time uh, about things uh, related to the Bible. And so, I hope tonight's uh, message is helpful for you. James chapter one. We're really going to just take a look at uh, at verse number one. we give a little bit of background of the book of James. You might not know this, but. Uh, uh, when we started Who We Call a Baptist Church, we had a, a sermon series that we started called uh, Clean Slate, where we basically talked about God's forgiveness and how God gives fresh starts and how we as a church were starting fresh and things like that. And then on Sunday nights, we talked about uh, what made us Baptists, and we talked through uh, what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian and the things that are imperative for us as we're Bible-believing Christians. As we got to the end of that, I thought to myself, I want to go through a book of the Bible on Sunday nights and kind of uh, teach through a book of the Bible verse by verse. And so uh, I, I didn't really know what to do. And, and to be frank, frank with you, uh, I didn't know if our church was going to make it or not, because it was really, honestly, I'm not trying to be funny or anything like that. It was literally week to week for those first few months. And so I thought to myself... I don't want to start a book and not be able to finish it because that would be embarrassing. Uh, so, if our church uh, only has a, a few months uh, of, of life to it, let's go with something really short. So, we preached through No Lie, our very first book we ever preached through, the Book of Philemon, uh, because there is one chapter. Uh, and so, um, I, I made the mistake in my very first time ever preaching through a book, the Book of Philemon. I set up and gave the introduction to the book, what we know about the book, who wrote the book, why they wrote the book, and uh, the theme of the book, and things like that. I, I did that along with the very first few verses, and it was a really long night for that night. And so, I don't want to do that again and so uh, but a uh, good fun historical fact about who we call the first book of the Bible that we went through verse by verse was the book of Philemon uh, and it was good too I'll tell you uh, back in the day and so uh, and then after that I think we tackled the bu- book of 1st uh, Corinthians uh, and then went the 2nd Corinthians we've gone through 1st uh, John uh, as well on Sunday nights and so uh, here we find ourselves in the book of James. I'm so fired up about the book of James because there's so much to unpack. Um, it's, a, it's a short book if you've never read the book of James your homework this week is to read the book of James. Actually Your homework for everybody this week is read the book of James. It'll really only take you about 15 minutes or so, uh, but it will be time well invested and time well spent, Uh, and I would always recommend when you read the Bible, read the Bible with a pen, read the Bible with a highlighter, uh, and make note of things that jump off to you uh, off the page, uh, because the, the Word of God is a book that's alive, it's living, and it speaks to us every single time we open it. So, James chapter 1. Starting in verse number 1, again, to understand a book of the Bible, we need to understand who wrote it, why they wrote it, who they wrote it to, the major theme of the book, the time frame it was written in, uh, things along those lines. We'll cover all that uh, tonight. James chapter 1, verse number 1, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. When we talk about the author of the book, we're obviously going to say that the author of the book is James. He tells us that in uh, verse number 1. Really simple, really straightforward. But then the question comes, James who? Uh, we find two major Jameses that we find in the book of Acts. Uh, we find uh, th- throughout the Gospels, we find Peter, James, and John. Uh, James and John were brothers, uh, the sons of Zebedee they were. And so they were both fishermen that were called to be apostles. Uh, if, you, if you gave Jesus an inner circle, Peter, James, and John would have been Jesus's kind of closest three guys of all the apostles that he had. Uh, some of the first ones that he actually called uh, to follow after him. So uh, that's one contender for James, uh, the brother of John. The other contender for the James that we find here as the author of the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now we find James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, was one of the original uh, pastors of the church at Jerusalem, and we find him uh, greatly involved in the things that are going on in the church uh, in the book of Acts. And so we would ascribe the book of James to James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ reason behind that is uh, John I'm sorry James the brother of John uh, actually uh, has his life taken in Acts chapter number 12 and so uh, the James that we see that continues on in the church in Acts uh, chapter 15 acts chapter 21 uh, is not James the brother of John it's James the half-brother of Jesus Christ uh, who functioned as a pastor there and so we would ascribe the uh, book of James obviously to James but James the half-brother of Jesus Christ now some people have questioned this because uh, James uh, when he uh, outlines who he is in James chapter one, Verse number one says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, or James who happened to uh, share a room with Jesus when he was growing up or anything like that. And so some people have questioned the fact that, is this James, the half-brother of Jesus because he doesn't mention that anywhere. Uh, but if you uh, read throughout the Bible and you read throughout the New Testament, you find even Paul himself uh, counted knowing Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense uh, greater than actually knowing him in person. Uh, Peter actually had heard uh, the voice of God come from heaven, and Peter actually said, Hey, uh, we have a more sure word of prophecy. More than hearing the, the voice of God, we have the word of God in, in its place. And so I think James, the half brother of Christ, rather than calling attention to his relationship with Jesus Christ uh, in a familial sense or in a family sense, really calls attention to his, his relationship with Jesus Christ as servant. And so we don't have any doubt whatsoever that, in this case here, that uh, James is half brother of Jesus Christ. Now, James was not originally uh, a believer in Christ. We find in John chapter number 7 uh, that James himself had actually rejected Christ as Messiah. Uh, and his own members of his own household did not believe him and did not follow after him. And so uh, this obviously is going to be a little bit different as we get into the book of Acts. We see that James is greatly involved in the church at Jerusalem. is in a position of uh, pastoral authority uh, in the church at Jerusalem there as well. So when we talk about uh, the author of James of, is going to be James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now we take a look at the audience, who is this book written to and why is that important? You always need to know who they're writing to and why they're writing to them. For example, uh, we take the book of 1 Corinthians, it was written to the church at Corinth. What was the purpose of writing to the church at Corinth? Well, it was a church that Paul had started, it was a church that he had pastored, and it was a church who had fallen into a lot of egregious moral sin. And so Paul was writing to correct false teaching that was taking place, uh, or a lot of sin that was taking place in the church. You take a look at the book of Galatians, was written to not the church at Galatia, but the church as of Galatia. It was a region that Paul wrote to. The primary reason for Paul writing to them was the fact that there was false teaching uh, that dealt with Judaism and the Judaizers telling people that if you follow Jesus, you also have to follow the Old Testament law. And so Paul wrote to correct that. So it's always important to understand the reasoning behind the letter, who the audience is, and so that's really important. I would highly encourage you at this point if you don't have a good study Bible to buy one Uh, because a study Bible makes things a lot easier as you go through scripture and find out uh, who wrote it, the time frame they wrote it, and things along those lines. Uh, I highly recommend my favorite study Bible in all the world is the Life Application Study Bible Uh, because basically the top half of the Bible is the Bible. The bottom half is what does that mean for you and I on a daily basis? What is the actual practical, life application of the Word of God, and so I'd encourage you to do that. Any good study Bible worth its salt is going to have some uh, introductory pages before every chapter of the Bible that talk about who the author is, who they wrote it to, a brief outline of the, the Scriptures and things like that. If you don't have a study Bible, get one. Uh, I think we have some life application study Bibles on the shelf back there. Uh, if not, we have some in the, the foyer as well. Uh, my second favorite study Bible will be the Ryrie Study Bible. Uh, it has some really good information and good footnotes and things like that very first study Bible that Angela and I ever got was the Open Bible. We have some copies of that just because it's inexpensive. And uh, So while a life application study Bible might cost you $55 or so, uh, the Open Bible is going to run about $35 or so. Uh, but uh, it's an investment in your spiritual well-being. So get a good study Bible for sure. Uh, I remember uh, Angela and I bought uh, study Bibles for one another as gifts when we first started walking with Jesus, and my wife has the exact same Bible that I bought her 20 plus years ago today. Uh, it's got notes in the front, they've got pages that are falling out of it, we've got to get it rebound and stuff like that, but an investment in a good study Bible will take you so far, and so it's going to cover a lot of the things that we'll be talking about tonight uh, as well if you get yourself a good study Bible, so uh, if you haven't got one, get one. Who is this written to? The audience here, James tells us in verse number one, James is a servant of God the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So, so in this case here, James is writing to the twelve tribes of Israel. He's writing to Jewish Christians who have been scattered from Jerusalem. Uh, now, Jerusalem was the place that they were; it was the, the place of the main synagogue, It was the place of the temple uh, that we have uh, in Jerusalem. And when Jesus Christ came ascended into heaven, left the apostles there in Jerusalem, and said, wait here till the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, I want you to take this whole thing worldwide. Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. They waited. The day of Pentecost came. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They went out and they preached the gospel. Peter preached. And 3,000 people were saved, baptized, and added to the church in one day. Acts chapter number 2, verse number 42. And we see the church then began to grow by the thousands. And so we see the multiplication of believers here in Jerusalem. It began to grow and grow and grow in a very, very short period of time. Now, when this happened, there were a lot of people that weren't happy about it. Uh, For example, the Jews. Uh, They were, were disappointed because all these people were falling into what they deemed a false religion of Christianity. And then, then came the persecutors of the church, those that were hardcore Jews that wanted these people extinguished. These Christians should be gone. These Christ followers who follow a false Messiah in their de- determination should be gone out of the church or out of the synagogue altogether. And if we can't get rid of these people, we're gonna throw them in jail. We're gonna put them to death, whatever we have to do. The Apostle Paul was part of that group that came to Jerusalem and began to persecute the church. He was consenting unto the first death of the uh, uh of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. As people were thrown in jail, the Apostle Paul had a part in all that and went wherever he could go to persecute Christians. Uh, We find that Paul uh, tells his testimony in the book of Acts of how he had gone to Jerusalem to persecute people and when they had left and gone to other cities, he followed them to other cities to make their life even more increasingly difficult. And so as persecution came upon the church at Jerusalem and people began to be thrown in jail and it became illegal for them to gather together and people were losing their jobs and, and there were fierce, harsh criticism coming upon the church. People said, hey, we gotta get out of here. And so what happened, and this is a beautiful thing, is there was one church in Jerusalem. It was the church that Jesus himself started and that church basically began to scatter everywhere that they could find a place. And so this group would move out to a cave over here. They would move out to a countryside over here. They would start a new village over here. And churches began to pop up all over the known world at that time. And it just goes to show that the gospel, when faced with persecution, doesn't stop. The church, when it faces opposition, doesn't cower in weakness. It always strengthens and expands. We've seen this in our church here over the last 16 months. When we had come back for our first service after a 12-week hiatus, our attendance was at about 80% of what we were pre-COVID. We saw a little bit of a dip. And just to be honest with you, I, I was just thankful to be back together. I didn't care whether it was uh, 10 people or 100 people. But over the last uh, 16 months or so, we've seen God begin to add to His church and seen people saved and baptized and added to His church and growing in their faith. And our church now is probably at about 125 to 130% of our attendance of what it was prior to COVID. We have things like Wednesday night that we had this past Wednesday night. We just told people, hey, show up and join a small group. It was the largest ever midweek gathering of our church in the history of Hui because people want the word, people want to be together, and the church cannot be stopped. The church will only grow amidst persecution, trials, and setbacks. That's just how it's always been and that's how it will always be because you cannot stop the church of Jesus Christ. So we find these uh, these people that had been a part of the church at Jerusalem, now they've scattered into other regions, and now they really don't have a lot of pastoral leadership. Basically, you just got Christians who says, hey, here's the Bible, here's what Jesus Christ has done, we're going to gather together, we're going to praise, we're going to read the scripture that we have, we're going to take care of one another, and love one another, and encourage one another. And these churches that began to pop up from time to time that uh, maybe were started by Paul or some other folks that had started these churches, uh, the, the cool thing is they started getting mail, started getting letters like hey paul sent a letter to the church at corinth we should pass that letter around so that other people can read it hey paul sent a letter to the church at uh, thyatira we're going to pass that around to all the churches in the galatian region and let them read it and then these letters that were distributed then became a part of their core structure of what they did paul wrote a letter to the church at rome and i can only imagine how groundbreaking the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome was. A church that he'd never actually attended himself, was hoping to go visit sometime soon. But he wrote the book of Romans that would change the face of Christianity forever and really become the foundation and bedrock for what we hold true as doctrine. James writes to these churches who are scattered abroad, who at this point really have no type of leadership. Uh, They don't really have any type of of, uh, governance structure yet. We'll find in, the, as Paul writes in his pastoral epistles to Timothy uh, and to Titus, Paul tells them, hey, you need to, to uh, elect deacons. You need to identify pastors. You need to ordain them. You need to give them, here's the qualifications for them. Here's how they lead. But at this point, when we find in the book of James, these letters haven't been written yet. So you've really just got a group of people who are part of a big church who scattered out in all these other areas that are just trying to figure out Christianity. How do they handle these things? How do they treat other people? What makes Christians distinct from other people? What makes Christianity different than, say, Judaism? What makes us Christians stand out from the difference of the way that unbelievers are? And so James writes a letter to these Christians that are scattered abroad. No matter where they might be, he writes a letter to them saying, Hey, guys, here's some things that are really important for you to gather. And so James, as he writes uh, this book predominantly to Jewish Christians, uh, he writes to them and says, hey, here's some things you need to keep in mind. And as uh, James writes to these Christians that are scattered from the Church of Jerusalem out throughout the known world at that time, he writes to them, and the very first thing he writes to them. If you can imagine being driven from your home, being driven from people you used to gather with and worship with, and people that you really considered family, and you find yourself maybe in some far off land and maybe a cave or a field somewhere or uh, finding shelter underneath some trees. You guys are just getting together on a weekly basis to, to uh, talk about Jesus and to praise God together, and you're just trying to make a go of it, trying to figure out what's going on. Imagine getting a letter from James, who would have been in a pastoral role there at the Church of Jerusalem. He writes a letter And he says, hey, guys, it's James. I'm writing to all the Christians that have been scattered. Guys, I want you to keep this in mind. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials or temptations. He starts off the letter very first from the beginning. Hey, guys, difficult times are upon us, but don't sweat it. This is actually a reason for joy instead. And so understanding the audience that James writes to helps us to understand kind of the idea and mindset that he has as far as sharing these types of things uh, that he has. The time frame that we have uh, that that most theologians guesstimate uh, for the uh, the writing is 44 to 49 A.D. This would have made it one of the very first ever uh, epistles or letters that was written in the New Testament. This time frame here we we guesstimate because uh, by this time here there's no mention by James of any other Gentile believers. He writes it primarily to Jewish Christians. Uh, He doesn't mention any of the, the Gentiles that are taking place. Acts chapter 15, we find there's a a big uh, kind of disturbance or problem or drama in the church that started over uh, Gentiles who are now going to become Christ's followers. And uh, the the things that we have as far as uh, abstaining from meats that are offered to idols and things like that, that took place at what's sometimes referred to as the Jerusalem Council. We don't find James mention any, any Gentile believers in here whatsoever, and so most uh, theologians believe that, that would be, would have, this letter would have taken place prior to the uh, Council of Jerusalem, prior to the uh, things that were taking place with the Gentile believers. Uh, that would have been handled in uh, Acts chapter number 15. So that's kind of the, the ballpark time frame that we have as far as that's concerned. This will be important when we take a look at uh, something a little bit later as well as far as the time frame that something was written. Now, what's the primary theme that we have in the book of James? Uh, the book of James' primary theme from beginning to end is this. Faith gets to work. Faith is not meant to, to primarily be something that makes us feel better. Uh, faith is not meant to be something that helps us to uh, face each and every day. Faith gets to work. Some people, when they preach through the, the book of James, have used the title, uh, James, Christianity and Work Clothes. Uh, I, I love the idea behind that. But the primary thing that we see from beginning to end is that your faith will change the way that you live your life without fail. The word faith is mentioned 14 times uh, out of the 108 verses that are in this book. So 108 verses in the book of James, out of that, the word faith is mentioned 14 times. But get this, there are 59 commands in those 108 verses. In other words, faith important, yes, but here's 60, almost 60 things that you need to do with your faith, 59 commands and only 108 verses. You talk about somebody who's given some orders, given some guidelines, trying to put some things in order for the new Christians uh, that he's trying to to give guidance and direction to. Uh, That's what James does in this case. James is less about doctrine, but more about how doctrine impacts our day-to-day living. This is why it's so important for you and I to be gun barrel straight, 100% accurate when it comes to all matters of doctrine, because doctrine always influences the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis. If I believe that God is up in heaven waiting to give me a new car, uh, to advance me at work, to to restore my health, to make me wealthy, to give me status then that's going to color my view of, first of all, who I think God is. But secondly, it's going to color my view of how I act on a day-to-day basis. If I believe that God's just around to give me stuff or increase my wealth, I'm going to pursue wealth at all expenses because that's what I believe God wants for me. That's why doctrine is so important for you and I, because our doctrine will always influence the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis. That's why us at Huikala, we we make a big, huge deal about doctrine here, and we make a big deal about calling out false teaching here, because your doctrine is so critical to what we believe. When we talk about doctrine, we're talking about a, a group of truths that we hold near and dear to our heart as far as who God is, the character of God, and the importance of God's word. For example, at Who We Call it, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It's not the thoughts of God. It's not God's uh, ideas that he has. It's not a cute little storybook that tells us about Jesus. It is the Word of God. We believe the Bible to be divinely inspired. And when we say inspired, we mean God breathed. And if God has breathed something for us, we should perk up and take really, really close attention to what he says. And whatever he says, we need to follow it. Jesus himself said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Therefore, it must be really, really important for us to understand Bible doctrine. That's why we place a high importance on teaching Bible doctrine. Uh, Our discipleship program really is the bread and butter of what we do here for building Christians. When we talk about the the Great Commission, go, win, baptize, teach, the teach portion of that is training people in what Jesus said, helping them to understand good Bible doctrine and be able to determine truth from error. I want you to be so well-versed in the Word of God that when you hear something, you say, ooh, that doesn't sound necessarily right. Let me look that up in the Bible. When you hear somebody talking maybe on, quote, Christian radio, and you say, ooh, that doesn't really jive with the Bible. Let me look into that a little bit deeper. That you're so well-versed in good Bible doctrine, that when pre- presented with falsehood, you can spot it a mile away. Because doctrine will eventually affect our day-to-day living, because doctrine matters, because belief dictates behavior. If I really believe the Word of God, I'm going to stake my life on it. I'm going to build my life on it. I'm going to, to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If I really believe the Bible to be true, it's going to influence every decision that I make. For our single adults, if you believe the Bible to be true, you're not going to date an unsaved person. The Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's just a non-starter. Someone's not a Christian. It's a no-brainer. They're not a potential mate for me. Done. The Bible says we should flee fornication, avoid youthful lust, flee youthful lust, the Bible says. So again, if you're in a dating relationship, I'm not going to be around anything that would cause me to lust. Uh, Paul says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Hey, I'm going to keep my hands to myself until the day that I'm joined together in marriage. I'm going to walk in purity and holiness and righteousness because the Bible is my guide. Here's the problem. When the Bible's no longer our guide, anything goes. If I don't have to follow scripture or I get to pick and choose what I want from the Bible, then I become the arbiter of truth. I become the determinator of right versus wrong. No longer is the Bible authoritative. I become the authority. So that's why, again, for us, we have to lay our foundation as the Word of God. Everything gets built on top of that. How I treat my wife, how I raise my children, all going to be influenced by the Word of God. How you function in the workplace, how you treat your coworkers, all is going to flow from the Word of God how you treat people you don't know or people that are in need or people who have, uh, have needs, all that is gonna flow from the Bible because the Bible is everything to us. It's so important to us that if we don't have the Bible, we don't have anything. If it were not for God's word, we don't know who God is, what he expects of us, how we make things right with God, how we can make right all the wrong that we've done, we have no way to, to even go forward if we don't have the Bible. That's why it's critical for us as Bible-believing Christians. And so for, for James, in this case here, uh, he, he's not so heavy doctrinally. He's more, uh, in more practical, in a sense. And so James, uh, the book of James addresses uh, lots of practical issues, trials, poverty, riches, materialism, favoritism, social justice, the tongue, worldliness, boasting, making plans, praying, what to do when we're sick, and a whole host of other things as well. I didn't realize this until I started unpacking this. I never actually heard it called this. But sometimes people refer to James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And I thought that's such a fitting title because James has so many little nuggets that he drops. And then he like moves on to something else. Like he'll say something and you would be like, ooh, that's really good. Tell me more about that. And James has already moved on to something else. It's Kind of like Proverbs where you're like, oh, yeah, tell me more about the wise man. And and Solomon's already off onto something totally else. And so we kind of see that same structure in the, in the book of James and the fact that there's not any one particular uh, overarching theme where like the book of Galatians deals with Judaizers and, and being able to uh, stand in faith alone by Christ alone. We don't really see a, a central theme running through the book of James other than this. Your faith should make a difference in the way that you live every single day. One author summed up the book of James as this, trials and temptations are both inevitable, and God intends them both to deepen our faith. Uh, This is definitely true when it comes to the book of James because it starts off from the jump of, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Hey, consider it a joy. It's a reason to praise God if you find yourself in a difficult situation. We'll take a look at next week, the reason why God allows us to go through trials and God's uh, purpose in those trials. Now, moving on to something that's incredibly important for us to understand. Uh, We sometimes go through this, we touch on it briefly in discipleship, uh, probably not as much as we should, uh, but it's incredibly important when we talk about canonicity of the Bible. How do we know that the book of James should actually be in the Bible altogether? Sometimes people will ask, how do we know that we have all of the Bible? Uh, how do, did they determine what gets put in the Bible, what gets left out of the Bible? So, sometimes people will say, hey, my uh, aunt gave me a book, uh, it's a, a Bible, it's a Catholic Bible, and in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a bunch of books that my Bible doesn't have. What is that all about? We're talking about canonicity. Uh, the word canonicity comes from the word canon, which the word canon literally means a ruler or a measuring stick. And so canonicity is the measuring stick that we use to determine what gets into God's Word and what doesn't make it into the Bible. Now, we talk about canonicity, the canonicity of the Old Testament was determined by Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Jesus had actually mentioned on a couple of different occasions that you have the law and the prophets. Uh, Basically, the first five books of the the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are referred to as the law. After that, he says you have the prophets, and those things were, have always been deemed by Christ and everyone before Christ as the Word of God, as canon as Scripture. So Old Testament canon was kind of pretty much set in stone uh, from the get-go when Jesus himself identified what the Old Testament canon would look like. Now, New Testament canon is going to be a little bit different uh, because uh, throughout the ages people have, have tried to determine, hey, this should be, be in Scripture, that shouldn't be in Scripture, or this shouldn't be part of the canon, and this should be part of the canon, and things like that. We don't see that a lot uh, anymore these days uh, as much. But uh, from time to time, some liberal scholar come and say, hey, we found some scroll or a fragment of a scroll. that means part of the Bible is missing and things along those times, lines. And so we need to be aware of that. But when you're talking to somebody, they're going to hey say, hey, how do we know that we have all of the Bible? We're going to talk about canonicity when that question comes up. Hey, who actually determined what writings got into the Bible and what writings got left out of the Bible? That's determined by canonicity as well. When people say things like, hey, the Bible is just a bunch of books that were written by man that were smashed together in a book, uh, we can say, hey, first of all, the Bible was written by men as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God, and that all Scripture is given by inspiration it's God breathed Himself, and so God used men to pen the words, but they are the Word of God. And we know that we have all of the Bible because we have certain rules for determining canonicity of the Bible. Now you and I can rest assured that what we hold in our hands or the app that you have on your phone has all of the Bible in it. There's nothing missing in there. Uh, There's no books of the Bible or chapters of the Bible that are missing that should have gotten added that didn't get added because uh, believers throughout ages have determined the reasons, uh, the guidelines behind canonicity which we'll cover here in just a moment. So New Testament canon is first of all determined by the author. Who wrote it? It has to be written by either an apostle or someone who is closely related to an apostle in some sense. Uh, For example, the book of Matthew, written by an apostle. Mark, written by an apostle. Luke, Luke wasn't an apostle, but Luke was closely associated with an apostle. He was a traveling uh, companion of uh, the apostle Paul. And so he was close to an apostle, related to an apostle, Luke actually did a lot of his own legwork for the the Gospel of Luke and basically was an investigative journalist. Uh, Luke was a medical doctor, but uh, a lot of folks believe that he was hired by a man by the name of Theophilus to go and write a story of what really happened with Jesus Christ. And so Luke went around gathering eyewitness accounts and wrote from a kind of investigative journalist position. Then Luke also penned the book of Acts for us as well, and so made a history of what was taking place in the early church. And so while Luke himself wasn't an apostle, he was closely related to an apostle. The book of John, written by John. Uh, the book of uh, Acts, written by Luke, again. Uh, the book of Romans, written by Paul. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul, 2 Corinthians, Paul. And we begin to go down the list here of the, the authors of the book. So when we get to uh, who wrote it, the answer is, was it a uh, Uh, an apostle or someone who is closely related to an apostle. So uh, we take things like the Gospel of Mary, which supposedly is a real authentic work. We would reject that because it wasn't written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle. Uh, Also, there is 101 other things wrong with the other gospels that are missing, which we'll take a look at in just a second as well. So first question, who is the author and can that be deemed authentic? There's a Gospel of Timothy. Well, Timothy wasn't an apostle. He was closely related to someone who was an apostle. So what do we say about the Gospel of Timothy? Well, could possibly be, but does it fit the other criteria for canonicity? So again, we have to take a look at this as a total. Was it written by an apostle or someone closely related to an apostle? Next, was it written before 90 AD? The time frame in which it was written is going to be critical for determining, is this part of the canon of Scripture? Now the book of Revelation being the last uh, book that was written in the Bible. The end of the book of Revelation says, hey, basically this is the end. If anybody adds to this, God's going to add to them the plagues. If anybody takes it away, God's going to take away their name from the book of life. Some people believe that to be uh, just the end of the book of Revelation. But I think John's speaking authoritatively for the canon of Scripture, basically saying, hey, this is the end of God's open revelation. There's nothing left that God has to say. After God has shown me heaven itself, after God's shown me the end of time judgment, he's shown me a new heaven and a new earth, I think that's all there is to say. And so John kind of closes out the canon of Scripture by saying, this is the end, the book of Revelation. That was ballpark about 90 A.D. or so. So if we find some scripture that was written or some supposed scripture that was written in, say, 120 A.D. or 150 A.D. or 200 A.D., we're automatically going to reject that based on the time frame in which it was written. Next, is this letter written in harmony with the rest of biblical doctrine? Does this jive with what the rest of the Bible says? Now, some people would argue that this makes the Bible uh, kind of... uh, a collection of cherry-picked books that says exactly what we want it to say. And I can understand that criticism, but here's what we also understand about who God is. God never contradicts himself, ever. And so if God speaks authoritatively here, he's not going to say something contradictory authoritatively over here. One of those just isn't correct. And so we use, again, the idea behind canonicity and the rules of canonicity to determine which gets put in and which gets left out. For example... Some of the books in the Apocrypha talk about baptism for the dead. That doesn't jive with anywhere else in Scripture, doesn't even jive with the idea of baptism, doesn't jive with the idea of salvation or heaven or hell or judgment or anything like that. So we look at that and we say, that doesn't even go with the rest of the Bible, that doesn't fit, man, it gets rejected based on the grounds of not only doctrinal content, but the other problems that were associated with it as well. So does it jive with the rest of the Bible as far as doctrinal, biblical harmony as well? Here's the other one that's really super-duper important. Has it been preserved to this day? God made a promise in His Word that He would preserve His Word unto all generations, and that Jesus himself said that not a jot or a tittle would pass away until everything had been fulfilled. And so God promised, one of the great promises of God in his word is that he would preserve his word to all generations. That means nothing will ever be lost in the Bible. If it's lost, it wasn't supposed to be in the Bible. Simple as that. So has it been preserved for us throughout all generations? So here's what we know about Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. Paul wrote, his first letter to the church at Corinth. And he called it, what do we call it? Ah, incorrect. Oh, man. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth before 1 Corinthians, and we don't have the letter. We don't know what it said. Now, he wrote him and told him, hey, I told you in my previous letter not to hang out with people who are involved in sexual sin. I told you that the first time that I wrote to you. But we don't have the first letter that Paul wrote. All we have is his second letter, which we call 1 Corinthians. There you go. You almost said 2 Corinthians. I know you did. So, first letter Paul wrote, we don't have it. Second letter he wrote, 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote a third letter. What do we call that? Uh, Some of you were hesitant and you hesitated for a good reason. We don't have Paul's third letter. When he writes 2 Corinthians, he says, hey, I told you in my last letter about that, that, that was brought to you. you got to kick these false teachers out of the church, and you haven't done it yet. And I'm writing to you again to tell you this. So Paul wrote, first letter, don't have it. Second letter, 1 Corinthians. Third letter, don't have it. Fourth letter, 2 Corinthians. That's not confusing at all, is it? <laughs> so we have his second and fourth letter, which are called 1 and 2 Corinthians. So imagine this. Some guy's cleaning out some building that's thousands of years old in Jerusalem somewhere and out rolls a scroll. And he unrolls the scroll and what do you know? Paul says to the church at Corinth, I'm writing to you for the very first time to challenge you to not hang out with people who are involved in sexual sin. And we find Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. What do we do with it? Do we include it in, as part of the Bible? Is it now part of the canon of Scripture where we now add to the Bible? Based on canonicity, first of all, was it written by an apostle, or someone close to an apostle? Yes. Second of all, does it, was it uh, written in the time frame that was appropriate before 90 AD? Yes. Thirdly, was it written uh, in harmony with the rest of biblical doctrine? If Paul wrote it, chances are it was. But was it preserved for everyone or was part of the Bible lost? Here's the thing, if we lost part of the Bible, stay with me here for a second, okay? If we lost part of the Bible, and it's now been, quote, restored, then that means that God didn't keep his promise to preserve his word to all generations. If God broke his promise, then God's a liar. If God's a liar, he can't be God. And if God can't be God, then Jesus can't be God, and if Jesus can't be God, then we don't have a Savior, and if we don't have a Savior, we're still in our sins, and we shouldn't even bother getting together on the weekends because we need to go find us another Savior. You see how that logic has a domino effect? So that's why you and I must be 100% certain that we hold in our hands the complete, inerrant, infallible Word of God, because if not, our belief structure is a house of cards that the first time the wind blows is going to fall into a million pieces unless it is found in the bedrock of the Bible. So we find Paul's first and second, uh, first and third letters to the book at, uh, to the church at Corinth. Man, I would love to read it. I mean, fascinating stuff, right? Can you imagine what he said, man? Man, here's Paul speaking after thousands of years. Nobody's ever read his mail before. This is awesome. We would read it, but we wouldn't include it as part of Scripture because God's promised to preserve His Word to all generations. That's why, again, every time they clear out some cave in, in Israel somewhere and they find some scrolls, they begin to pull out fragments. They begin to, to, to look at it. They say, oh, we found one part of a fragment that contains part of a phrase that refers to Jesus' wife. Oh, so Jesus must have been married and we're missing part of the Bible. No, first of all, we're not missing part of the Bible. Second of all, Jesus wasn't married. And again, these things are based on a, a, a tiny fraction of a manuscript, not even a whole sentence, just a couple of words that are found that are be considered ancient literature. So again, for us, we know we have the Bible. Any additional scrolls that we might find would just be interesting to read. Things like the Dead Sea Scrolls only uh, verify the fact that we actually have the, the Bible uh, as was intended for us to have. So again, really important. Those are the ideas for canonicity written by an apostle, or someone close to an apostle, written before 90 AD written in harmony with the rest of the biblical doctrine and preserved to this day so there are certain ancient writings that we would consider rejected from canon these would be known as the Apocrypha if you get a, a, a Catholic Bible you'll find the, in between the uh, Old Testament and New Testament are some books called the Apocrypha these are also sometimes and these and others are referred to as deuterocanonical works big fancy Bible scholar word for you there the word deutero means second. If you understand uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, the name Deuteronomy literally means second law giving. And a lot of the things that are, were written in Leviticus are actually repeated in Deuteronomy. So it means second law giving is what Deuteronomy means. So we talk about deuterocanonical works, We're actually mean a second canon, which again, we would say if there's a second canon, then it's no canon at all because there is the canon, not a second canon. And so we would reject the apocryphal works based on the criteria that we have uh, for canonization. We reject the, uh, the, uh, the deuterocanonical works, again, based on the criteria that we have for canonization. Again, might be interesting to read once or twice. Uh, and if you, you've been walking with Jesus or been in the Bible for any length of time, you could read through these apocryphal works and go man, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't jive with the rest of the Bible. And you say, absolutely right. That's why we don't include it. So that's there. So I say that because, first of all, I want you to be well-informed. I want you to know why we have the Bible, how we can trust the Bible, uh, why, why we would reject certain ancient writings that would call themselves to be part of the Bible. Uh, why, if you were to pick up a, a Bible, maybe at a Catholic bookstore or something like that, you'd see that it has extra books that doesn't have. Are you, are you missing something? You're not missing anything at all. So, uh, again, if we want to uh, read those, again, they might have some type of ancient literature uh, perspective that we would find curious, but they've been fully rejected as divinely inspired or authoritative throughout all of church history. The church has always rejected these additional writings as part of canon and has never actually included them inside the canon of Scripture. Now, this is also an important point to pause here as well. We don't have time to unpack this tonight. Uh, we have talked about it before. Uh, last year, I believe we did, we talked about the, the church. When the church was started, we have the church that Jesus started when he called his apostles. Uh, he laid the foundation for his church whenever he called the apostles. It was empowered on the day of Pentecost when thousands of believers trusted in Christ, were filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized, added to the church. The church of Jerusalem starts, begins to grow by the thousands, scatters. That's the church that Jesus started. There comes a point at which doctrinal error comes into the church and it didn't take long. Again, you find in the New Testament, doctrinal error was being confronted time and time again by the Apostle Paul, by Peter, uh, and by others. And so you find doctrinal error came in and then the church split. The church that Jesus started split from other churches that were practicing false doctrine, things like baptismal regeneration, uh, things like uh, infant baptism, things like that. There was a split. And then about 300 A.D., this split off. The emperor of Rome, Constantine, sees a cross in the sky and says that God told him that he was to be the head of the church. And Constantine says, Rome is now a Christian nation and I am now the head of the church. I'm going to take over the church and be the head of it. And he began the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Now mind you, long before that, the church itself that Jesus had started had already split and Constantine took over the split of doctrinal error. But there have always been, since the time that Jesus Christ walked the earth, a group of Christians who just believe the Bible, who just walked with Jesus, that never, ever, ever were sucked into the false doctrine of the others. And so when we talk about church history, and when we say things like, the church has always rejected, please understand, anytime in this building that we use the term church, we're talking about the real church that Jesus himself started. That's really important because when you read history books and think, they say things like the church put people to death because they wouldn't join them, that's not Christianity. That's the Catholic Church. That's Catholicism. The, the, the Crusades were not the church. That was the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church killed people that wouldn't join the Catholic Church, which also included those people in the church that Jesus started. So Catholic Church actually killed real-deal Bible-believing Christians as part of their, quote, crusades. So again, I say that because I want you to be well-versed in church history. And while the Catholic Church might have held to the apocryphal writings as part of canon, the church that Jesus started has always rejected them as being authoritative because they don't line up with good biblical doctrine. I say all of that to say this. When it comes to canonicity and the book of James... Originally, when the, the church early believers were putting together their idea of the list of the canonization of Scripture, the book of James was actually the last book added. reason behind that, it's very short, it was addressed specifically to Jewish Christians, it doesn't hold any doctrinal content, and it was, wasn't written by one of the apostles. And so for that reason, fun Bible fact, the book of James was the last book that was added to the canon of Scripture. So... Fun fact, does that mean it's any less Bible? Absolutely not, because when God speaks, God speaks. It doesn't matter if it was the first or the last. It was good, because uh, the Word of God is the Word of God. So, uh, but that's just kind of an interesting idea behind uh, the the book of James and its its fallen canonicity. And so again, you wouldn't find anybody who actually believes and loves the Bible that would say the book of James isn't part of the canon of Scripture. Uh, That just doesn't hold water anywhere. So, uh, but again... When we began to look at it, and this became really uh, popular in, say, the 1800s, 1900s, and, even, and it's even carried on even to today, where people call themselves religious scholars, but really they're the enemies of the gospel, they're the enemies of the Bible, and they're the enemies of the cross. In the name of liberalism, and the, the idea, when we talk about liberalism, we're not talking about politics and how you vote, or political parties. We're talking about theological liberalism where people begin to say, and this even took place uh, even in the 70s and 80s amongst a lot of Southern Baptists, which we, our church is not a Southern Baptist church. We're just a plain Baptist church. But amongst the Southern Baptist theological seminaries arose in the 70s and 80s a questioning of Scripture. Is Scripture really authoritative? Does it really have the final word? Is it really without error? Or are there some things that we could say, that probably was a scribe's error, that probably couldn't be ascribed to Christ, or this portion of Scripture probably didn't mean what we thought it to mean. And, And liberal theologians have tried to rewrite Scripture. And again, that's nothing new. We see that back even in the time of Christ himself where people tried to to uh, twist Jesus' words around. And so, uh, again, uh, those things, any Bible-believing scholar who really is a, a saved person has never questioned uh, the authority of the book of James. It's just solid from beginning to end. It's a really, really good book, and there's a lot of, of truth that we can live by in that. And so it's a really more heavily practical book as opposed to a doctrinal book. So uh, that's canonization in the book of James. So, that's your overview of James in a nutshell. Great introduction. Let's jump into the message. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, again, I made that mistake once. I'm not going to make it again. That's just the, the introduction. So a couple of things I want you to take away. You might look, be scratching your head going like, what do I really do with that? First of all, your homework, read the book of James this week. Second of all, we need to praise God that we have a copy of his word that we can read. That's a reason to just praise God tonight. Uh, in the, the Dark Ages, again, when you read history books and it says things like the church, it's not talking about the church that Jesus started, it's talking about Catholicism. The Catholic Church would actually have a copy of the Bible in Latin where no one could read it and it would actually be chained to the pulpit so that nobody could actually take it outside of the church and read it for themselves. And so m- men like uh, William Tyndale said this shouldn't be, everybody should be able to read the Word of God in their own language. And he gave his life to translating the Bible into English. We talked about this morning how William Tyndale was put to death because he translated the Bible into English. And so we look at that and we say, men and women have given their life for God's word so that you and I can have it and read it and hold it. A lot of the folks that were put to death by uh, the Catholic Church were put to death because they refused to give up their copy of the Bible. They had a copy of Scripture and they tried to take it from them and they wouldn't. So they they drowned them in a river, they pushed them off a cliff, they put them to death because they refused to give up on God's word. So I say that because I don't want our church or our people to ever be flippant towards the Bible as far as like, ah, oh, it's just a book, it's just good stuff, it's some good stories, it's some words to live by. Uh, men and women have given their life for the Word of God, and you and I should hold it near and dear. That being said, I want you to read through the book of James this week and figure out like, like what you f- feel to be important in the book of James. What's well, something that jumps out to you? Again, because uh, the, the Bible is a living book. And uh, again, I would encourage you to read the book of James with a, a pen and a highlighter and jot some thoughts down because we're going to go through it. And it's gonna, I'm just going to tell you ahead of time, it's going to take us a minute because we won't even get all the way through verse number two next week because I've already got next week's message written. It's good. Uh, and I don't want to leave anything uh, to you left in the passage of Scripture. So we're going to spend some time in the book of James uh, because it's definitely good. <laughs>